Okay, let's open our Bibles tonight to uh, Revelation chapter 14. Revelation chapter 14. Revelation chapter 14. We um, this chapter is describing um, some things that um, are taking place right at the end of the tribulation. The tribulation, that period of time that's coming ahead of us after the church is raptured out of here. I was thinking maybe I would draw some of this stuff on the board again. I don't know if I will. If we're going to get. I had a lot of verses I wanted to write up there for you, but I'm not sure. What, but anyway, we'll do a little bit of this, I guess. Of course, oh, well, that one doesn't work. So maybe I won't. Let's see if any of these work here. I didn't have time to check them before the service. Okay, all right, that one works. All right. All right, we're just going to... We always end up drawing something that's supposed to be a timeline. Here we are. This is the church period, church age that we're living in right now. Let me do black. That'll be a little better. <clears throat> Next big event on the calendar, of course, is the rapture, the resurrection of those believers that are sleeping, and the rapture of the church. First Thessalonians chapter 4. We're going to be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. And then, uh, all right, those are pathetic-looking clouds. <laughs> and uh, that is a throne. Can't do it justice. But up in glory, we're going to come before the throne of Jesus Christ, the judgment seat of Christ. And after the judgment seat of Christ, going to return with Jesus Christ, to the earth in glory when he sets up his kingdom and then begins the millennium. A thousand years of the Lord's government on the earth and then of course after that is eternity. But this time in between, while we're gone, uh, this time in between is the tribulation time and the focus during that time is on the nation of Israel. God's focus during this time, from the time of the cross until today, God's focus has been on the Gentiles. God's, been, God's Spirit has been going out into the world through those that are saved, uh, through those who are willing to be obedient and take the gospel to their neighbors, and God's just been getting people saved. He's been doing it every week, every day, somewhere in the world, somebody's getting saved, Gentiles are getting saved all over the place. And as they do, the Spirit of God is making them a part of the body of Christ. One day, that body will be complete. And the last person that God knew would get saved during this period of time is going to be added to the body of Christ. And then that spiritual body of Christ, of which you and I are members, is going to be lifted up into heaven, taken back to glory. We'll all be individually judged before the judgment seat of Christ. And the result of that judgment will determine whether... You will have glory. Thank you. Whether you will have glory and whether you will reign with the Lord Jesus Christ on the earth. That's the the outcome of that judgment. All right. But in the middle here, this period of time between the rapture and the return of Jesus Christ, 
this tribulation period, God's focus is not on the Gentiles, but on the Jews, upon the nation of Israel. And so when we read in Revelation chapter 14, this chapter that we're looking at, if you had to place it somewhere in this timeline, it's right over here, right near the end of the tribulation, just before the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to read a few verses of it, and then we're going to talk about something again. We're going to, a few more thoughts concerning the first fruits. Last Wednesday night, we dealt with the, um, these Jewish people that are described here in chapter 14, and they represent the first fruits, and we'll explain what that is just a little bit and go on with uh, what we began last Wednesday night. Revelation chapter 14, look at verse 1. And I looked, and lo, a lamb stood on Mount Zion, and with him a hundred and forty and four thousand. And as you know, and we've said it before many times, that 144,000, we first see them back in chapter 7. That's at the beginning of their ministry. Their ministry is to, they serve as witnesses during this time on the earth. Um, the church serves as God's witnesses during this time. We were supposed to be witnesses unto the Lord during this time. Every one of us individually had that responsibility. That's your responsibility as a child of God. Once you get saved, God has called you to be a witness, a living example of what happens when Jesus Christ saves a sinner. That's what a witness is, who has a personal experience with the Lord Jesus. And you may not be a theologian. You don't have to be. You might not have 500 verses memorized. But if you've been redeemed by the Lord, you're supposed to say so. And you're supposed to be a witness to somebody, a friend, a neighbor, a relative, a loved one, wife, a children, whatever it is. Or you can, you know, Look for a bigger ministry and go out and stand in the street publicly, or you can go hand out tracts at the ferry or give tracts out on the bus or, or give tracts out at school or talk to your schoolmates or talk to people you work with and go out of your way rather than just casual encounters. You can actually pray and ask God to lead you to divine encounters. Go out of your way to look for people to talk to. That would be a real faithful witness, wouldn't it? Somebody that actually took their responsibility seriously. But that's what we are supposed to be doing right now. And we're going to be called home and you're going to give an account of your ministry and be rewarded for your ministry. The part of it that was done faithfully. God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love. And God rewards those that have served him faithfully. You get to rule and reign with Jesus Christ. But during the tribulation, we'll be gone. The church will be gone. There will, there will be Gentiles getting saved. Uh, many, many thousands of them. A multitude of Gentiles getting saved. But God's focus as far as the preaching of the gospel, as far as witnesses, the focus is going to be upon the nation of Israel. And at the beginning of the tribulation, right here, is when that 144,000 get awakened. Revelation chapter 7 describes their awakening. Revelation chapter 14, though, we're seeing them at the end. Their ministry is complete. At the beginning, in chapter 7, they're on the earth. Chapter 14, at the end, they're in heaven. Because we see them here with the Lamb of God on Mount Zion in heaven. And uh, having His Father's name written in their foreheads. Verse 2, I heard a voice from heaven as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of a great thunder. And I heard the voice of harpers harping with their harps. And they sung, as it were, a new song before the throne and before the four beasts and the elders. No man could learn that song but the hundred and forty and four thousand which were redeemed from the earth. Uh, and so they are saved. They were redeemed. 
Um, in fact, in the Old Testament, last, last Wednesday night, we talked a little bit about the first fruits or the firstborn. Uh, the Lord had said in the law that the firstborn belonged to him, uh, whether it was a firstborn child or firstborn of your cattle or your flocks or whatever it was. If it was your crops, it was your first fruits, the first of the fruit that came up out of the field or out of the, out of the trees, out of the fruit trees or whatever you planted. When it began to bear fruit, the first of it belonged to God. And that was always an acknowledgement on your part that your blessings came from above. Not by your own strength and your own wisdom, but that your blessings come from above. And by giving God back, giving back to God that first fruit, you're acknowledging to God that you realize where your blessings come from. Instead of patting yourself on the back, you're thanking God. You're rejoicing in God. You're giving Him the glory. And by giving God that first fruit, you ensured his blessing on the harvest. Still a principle that holds true. Thank him for the little things. Thank him for the early things, right? Doesn't it say in the Bible that we ought to seek him early, right? Thank him for the little things. Thank him for the blessings that come early. And you can be sure that God will just keep blessing. But if you have an ungrateful heart about the little things, if you have an ungrateful heart, I mean, like Brother Matthew said tonight, what a blessing it is to... Just have that peace, that comfort of knowing you're saved. God takes away the confusion. He gives you a book. Uh, Vivian said she got up this morning. She was able to get out of bed and she had a Bible. I mean, you know how big, you know how huge those things are? Those, those are not little things. Those are big things. Those ought to be the things that we rejoice in more than a new car and a new house. That we're saved, we're on our way to heaven, I have a book, I have light, I have a Holy Spirit living inside of me, I'm sealed for all of eternity, my mind can't even conceive of what's coming, because God's got stuff planned for you that your brain couldn't comprehend, even if He drew it in a picture form for you, you wouldn't be able to understand it, we wouldn't even be able to make sense of it if God drew it in a picture, we, wouldn't, we couldn't comprehend what is awaiting the child of God. And so, that first fruit is very, very important to the Lord. And so, but he calls these, he calls these 144,000 in verse number four. These are they which were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. Now, these are Jewish males. This group has nothing to do with you. These are not Jehovah Witnesses. These are Jewish people, meaning Hebrews. They are not Gentiles. They're not Polish. They're not Italian. They are Jews, all right? Saved Jews that got 144,000 of them miraculously saved at a moment. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us that exact moment when they got saved, but I'm putting my money on something that happened right at the rapture. And I'll show you again why that is. That 144,000, I believe, got saved right here. As we're going, as we're leaving, they're coming in. They're coming. We're, we're the, the, the bell, the whistle blows. We're leaving the shift. Our shift is over, and their shift is beginning. All right, they're picking up where the church left off. A witness on the earth, witnesses on the earth for God. And it says in verse 4, it says, These were redeemed from among men, being, verse 4, the end of verse 4, being the first fruits unto God and to the Lamb. First fruits unto God and to the Lamb. <clears throat> so we said the first fruits always represented a precedent. Um, it was always the first of something, first to come out of the womb, first to come out of the ground, belong to God. So it's a precedent. Um, in the Old Testament, the firstborn had to either be redeemed or die. That's two choices. 
Either it belonged to God, if it were an animal, a clean animal, had to be an unclean animal, actually. It had to be, it could be brought to God, and uh, but uh, it had to either be redeemed, which meant you could buy, in a sense, uh, you, could, you could pay money, silver, a certain amount, and it would not have to die. That money, that silver, was redemption money. And so the firstborn either had to die or be redeemed. Jesus Christ chose to die. The firstborn. The firstborn. And he died so that you could be redeemed. Isn't that a blessing? That was the law. The firstborn had to die or be redeemed. He chose to die so you could be redeemed. You are redeemed so you don't have to die. He died so you could be redeemed. What a Savior. What a blessing. That He was willing, He was willing to make Himself a sacrifice, make His soul an offering for sin so that you and I could be redeemed. So the firstborn or the firstfruits are a precedent. The children of Israel, these 144,000 that get saved here at the beginning, are the first fruits, meaning the beginning, the first evidence of a greater harvest later. So the fact that God calls them the first fruits means that they are a precedent, the first, but the first fruits are also a promise. Because the first fruits, when it's offered to God, is a promise of a greater harvest later. So that first fruits, that 144,000 Jewish witnesses here at the beginning are God's promise that here at the end, there will be a great harvest of the nation of Israel. That the nation, the whole nation that is alive at that time, many of them are going to perish during the tribulation, uh, but those that are alive and survive the tribulation, Israel will be saved. Turn to uh, Romans chapter 11, Romans 11. It's a promise of a harvest that will come later. Romans 11. You know these verses. Romans 11.25. For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits, <laughs> that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. What's the fullness of the Gentiles? Well, that's not talking about the times of the Gentiles. It's different from the times of the Gentiles. The fullness of the Gentiles means when that body of Christ has come to the full. When, when, the, when the Gentile body of Christ has reached its fulfillment, when, it's, when God is done and it's time for the church to go, then that blindness that God has allowed to happen to the nation of Israel Blindness in the sense of having their Savior walking in their midst, the Messiah promised to them for thousands of years, and they didn't see who He was. They, they rejected Him. They despised Him. They considered Him smitten of God and afflicted. Um, they hid, as, their, as it were, their faces from Him. I mean, they, God allowed that. Their hearts were unbelieving to begin with, but God allowed that blindness to set in, right? Blindness follows unbelief, by the way. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. In whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them that 
believe not. So the unbelief comes first, then God allows blindness to set in. And that's what happened to Israel. God did not supernaturally blind them against their will. It wasn't that it was a nation that would have received Christ, and the Lord said, no, 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 it's not going to be possible. If their hearts had been willing, then God would have facilitated that. He would have given them more and more and more light, but the hearts were hardened and the hearts were unbelieving, and God allowed that blindness to set in. And so Romans 11 tells us that blindness in part, in part because not every Jew became blind, Paul didn't become blind. Twelve apostles didn't become blind. There were thousands saved on the day of Pentecost. There were thousands and thousands and thousands saved throughout Paul's ministry, Jewish people that got saved. And there continue to be thousands of Jewish people being saved. I mean, it's more difficult, but here and there, there have been people saved even in our own church. Um, so it's, it's a partial blindness. But the nation as a whole, its leaders, its politicians, um, have rejected who Jesus Christ is. But notice that it's partial because it's temporary also. It says that blindness in part has happened to Israel until. So that means it's, it's a, the, the blindness is not complete because it's not permanent. It's temporary. And that blindness remains until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. So when God has finished working for 2,000 years, He's been working among the Gentiles. The gospel started from the Apostle Paul, started out through the Gentile nations, and God has been working all around the world. Finally, it got to Staten Island, thank God, and uh, the Lord's been saving people here and in Brooklyn and Queens and so on and so forth. But we're coming to the end of that. And when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, then the body of Christ is going to go. And then what happens? And then that blindness on Israel's, in Israel will be lifted. It says, and so all Israel shall be saved, as it is written, there shall come out of Zion the deliverer, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them, when I shall take away their sins. Um, go, to, go with me to the Old Testament, Zechariah chapter 12. Just looking at some verses, that, that 144,000, that's the first fruits of a harvest that God has promised will follow. The harvest comes at the end. Right? First fruits is always at the beginning. So that 144,000 are going to be faithful throughout this period of time to be a witness for God. I don't know what the content of their message is. The Lord doesn't give us that in the book of Revelation. But we know they stand faithfully. And then in Revelation 14, we're actually seeing them in heaven. So somewhere between here and the end of the tribulation, they have been raptured to heaven as well. But um, in, um, where did I send you? Uh, Zechariah. Zechariah, look at chapter 12. Go down to verse number 9. Zechariah 12, verse 9. <clears throat> and it shall come to pass in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem... And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications. And they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. What a verse. They, doesn't say, I always, for a long time I misquoted that. I used to say they shall look upon him whom they pierced. There's a verse about the deity of Jesus Christ. This is God speaking. God is saying, they will look upon me 
whom they have pierced. Because God in the person of his son was pierced in his hands and his feet and nailed to that cross. And the nation of Israel is going to look upon me whom they have pierced and they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. In other words, there will come sorrow and repentance in the nation of Israel for what they, they're going to finally realize what they did when they allowed Jesus Christ to be crucified. Obviously, it was a generation thousands of years ago, but this generation that's alive at the end of the tribulation will um, own the responsibility for that. They'll see that their nation, their forefathers were responsible. And rather than saying, well, that was our forefathers, that wasn't us, God. No, they're going to mourn because they're going to finally realize what a mistake that was for their nation to have crucified the Messiah. In verse 11, In that day there shall be a great mourning in Jerusalem, as the mourning of Hadrimon in the valley of Megiddo. And the land shall mourn, every family apart, the family of the house of David apart, their wives apart, the family of the house of Nathan apart. In other words, national repentance, national sorrow, a nation broken and sorrowful over what they did in rejecting their Messiah. How is this possible? Because God is going to pour out the spirit of grace upon them and the spirit of supplications. God is going to move in their hearts and they're going to, for the first time, they're going to realize their sin. It says, um, uh, and then skip down to chapter 13, verse 1. In that day, there shall be a fountain open to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. All right? God is going to wash away their sins. He's going to open a fountain, in a sense, for them. A place where they can come and they can be clean of that sin. Uh, while we're in Zechariah, um, go over to uh, oh, chapter 13, verse 8. And it shall come to pass that in all the land, saith the Lord, two parts therein shall be cut off and die, but the third shall be left therein. Now, I take that to mean that during the course of the tribulation, not everyone in Israel will listen to the preaching of the 144,000. Not every Jew is going to believe. There'll still be those that reject. And in fact, it looks like two-thirds. It says, two parts therein shall be cut off and die, but the third shall be left therein. And I will bring the third part through the fire and will refine them as gold is refined and will try them as gold is tried. They shall call on my name, and I will hear them. I will say, it is my people. And they shall say, the Lord is my God. So, all Israel shall be saved. It's not a contradiction. Romans 11, 26, and 7 say, all Israel shall be saved. And it just simply means that that part that survives, many of them are going to die during the course of the tribulation because of their unbelief, because of their rejection of the preaching that they have an opportunity to repent. Um, but that third part that goes through the tribulation, God is going to refine them and purify them, and they will, and they will be saved. And that's the harvest here at the end. Go to Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3. Look at verse 1. Behold, I will send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, now, 
You know how sometimes a prophecy, you can break a verse right in the middle of the verse? And uh, the first part of this verse was already fulfilled. This part that we just read has already been fulfilled. I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. Who was that? John the Baptist. God sent his messenger. Isaiah chapter 40 said that John the Baptist was the messenger of the Lord. He was the forerunner. He came ahead to prepare Israel, uh, to make ready a people for their God. Uh, and, and God used John the Baptist to preach repentance and to prepare the nation of Israel for when Jesus Christ was presented to them at his baptism. And so John was that messenger. But notice right after that, right after that statement, there's a, there is a colon there, and it jumps ahead 2,000 years. Notice it says, And the Lord, whom ye seek, shall suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant. Now, the messenger of the covenant is not John the Baptist. Jesus Christ was the messenger of the covenant. Daniel chapter 9 says he came to confirm the covenant with Israel for one week. He came in Romans chapter 8, it says that he came to confirm the promises made to the fathers. So he was the messenger of that covenant. His arrival, Jesus' arrival on the earth confirms that the covenant God made with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob was still valid. A confirmation, in other words. When Jesus arrived, that's confirmation that God had not forgotten the nation of Israel, God had not forgotten His promises, that all those things God promised to Abraham were still valid, and the presence of Jesus Christ on the earth is the greatest confirmation of that. Israel should have been, if they had understood who Jesus Christ was, they would have dropped to their knees and thanked God because His arrival was the indication that the kingdom was at hand. And, uh, but they missed it. But He was the messenger of the covenant. Uh, now He's the mediator of the covenant, by the way, in the book of Hebrews. But at the time of His coming, He was the messenger of the covenant. But uh, whom ye delight in, behold, He shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. Verse 2, But who may abide the day of His coming? And who shall stand when he appeareth? It's obviously not John the Baptist this is talking about, but Jesus Christ. For he is like a refiner's fire. Now, you know what a refiner's fire is. They'd put the metal in there and it would the heat of that fire would burn away all of the impurities. So the coming of Jesus Christ is likened as a refiner's fire for the nation of Israel. So this is talking about not his coming here to come and get us and take us home, but His coming at the end of the tribulation when He comes in glory and power. The Bible even says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7, that He comes with fire. So here is the refiner's fire, the cross-reference between um, uh, Malachi chapter 3, verse 2. You could use as a cross-reference 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7, 8, and 9, because He comes with fire and vengeance. So it's a refiner's fire. And it says, Who shall abide the day of his coming? Who shall stand when he appeareth? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He shall sit. And so it's obviously he's going to come and sit upon his throne. When he comes here for you and I, he doesn't come to sit on a throne on the earth. He comes to get you and me and get us out of here. He's not stopping to sit down. In fact, we meet him in the air. There's no sitting. All right? It's not time to sit. But when he comes here, he sits down because he's coming back as king and there'll be a throne and he's going to sit, it says, 
as a refiner and a purifier of silver, and he shall purify the body of Christ. Right? Is that what it says? No. It's talking about Israel. He shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. Then shall the offering of Judah and Jerusalem be pleasant unto the Lord, as in the days of old and as in former years. Now that has never been fulfilled. That's still future. So he's coming with fire, and at his coming, Israel will be purified and refined. That's the harvest. That doesn't happen here, because he doesn't come with fire here, but he comes with fire here, and the nation of Israel will be purified and refined at the end. Go to Hosea chapter 3. Hosea chapter 3. <clears throat> Look at verse 4. For the children of Israel shall abide many days without a king, 2,000 years or two days, and without a prince and without a sacrifice and without an image and without an ephod, without teraphim. So, for 2,000 years, many, many days, Israel has not had their temple, not had a priesthood, not had a sacrifice, had no mediator. Israel has been without those things, without a king. Her king came to her 2,000 years ago and offered himself and his kingdom, and Israel said, no, thank you. And they mocked him and rejected him, even when... Even when Pilate put over his cross, this is the king of the Jews, they objected to that too. Don't say this was the king of the Jews. Say he said he was the king of the Jews. They did not want a king, and they did not want his kingdom. And so now they've had to abide many days without their king. It says, but verse 5, afterward, afterward. So obviously it's a long period of Israel being without... All those things that God promised her in the Old Testament. Afterward, shall the children of Israel return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. By the way, Hosea was written long after David was dead. So, obviously, David plays a part in this millennial kingdom here. The Bible describes David sitting upon a throne in Jerusalem also. So he'll be a king over Israel for that millennial time shall seek David their king and shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. All right? Well, while you're in Hosea, go over to um, Hosea uh, chapter 5, verse 15. I love these verses right here. <clears throat> this, is, this is so clear, so beautiful. I, uh, Hosea chapter 5, verse 15, and then we'll read into chapter 6. Verse 15, I want you to hear Jesus Christ say these words, because that's who's speaking here. And you know that this, this coincides with his departure from this earth back at the time of you know, his resurrection and his ascension into heaven after his death, burial, and his resurrection. Then he went back to heaven to wait, to wait out this church period, to wait for two days, 2,000 years, for God's Spirit to do a work among the Gentiles. And then he's coming to collect the heathen that God gave to him for an inheritance. Psalm chapter 2. We're the heathen, by the way, that the Lord wanted for an inheritance. Doesn't that make you feel good? Makes you feel important, doesn't it? That's what God said. Son, if you'll ask of me, I'll give thee the heathen for thine inheritance. Jesus said, okay, I'll take them. And here we are. 
<laughs> uh, look at this, verse 15. I will go and return to my place. And he did. Came, lived, loved, died, was buried, rose again, went back to his place. How long are you going to stay there, Lord? Till they acknowledge their offense and seek my face. In their affliction, so God's going to give them some affliction. This is going to be a horrible time of affliction, the time of Jacob's trouble. In their affliction, they will seek me early. <laughs> early, at the beginning. Verse six, uh, chapter 6, verse 1. Come and let us return unto the Lord. For he hath torn, and he will heal us. He hath smitten, and he will bind us up. After two days will he revive us. Amen, amen. In the third day he will raise us up, and we shall live in his sight. This is Israel speaking. Then shall we know, if we follow on, to know the Lord. His going forth is prepared as the morning, and he shall come unto us as the rain, as the latter and former rain upon the earth. All right, so the first fruits is not only a precedent, but it's also a promise of this. The fact that God blessed the first means that God plans an even greater blessing in the time of harvest. So it it's assurance that Israel, the nation of Israel will will be saved as a whole. All right? How does that relate to you and I? Well, uh, there is some application to you and I because Jesus Christ is our first fruits. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He's the precedent. He's the first. He was the firstborn, the first to come out of the grave, never ever to die again. That's the forerunner of all those that are in the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Look at verse number 20. 1 Corinthians 15, 20. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. That's a great verse. That's important. In Adam all die. You didn't need to rack up a long list of transgressions in order to be worthy of death. Just the fact that you came out of the womb in Adam, you're going to die. didn't have to be a great sinner. You didn't have to be a Hitler. You didn't have to be an SS agent in Auschwitz. You could be a little old sweet grandmother who never got born again because in Adam all die. But in Christ, in Christ shall all be made alive. That just means every single person needs to get out of Adam and get into Jesus Christ. That's all salvation is. You're just getting out of one state and the Spirit of God is putting you into another. Getting out of Adam, his condemnation, and what he brought on the human race, and getting into the blessings and the eternal life secured for you and I by Jesus Christ. Adam brought us nothing but condemnation and death. Jesus Christ brought us life and that more abundantly. And it says, verse 23, But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, Christ the firstfruits, afterward, they that are Christ's at his coming. So, Jesus Christ is not only the precedent, but he's also, just as these firstfruits are a promise of 
this to come, Jesus Christ, the first fruits, and what happened with him is the promise of what God intends to do with you and I. There's coming a resurrection for every child of God. And if you happen to be alive when Jesus Christ returns, you're going to have a resurrection without ever having gone in the dirt. How about that? You get a new body and you never got buried, but that's okay. You won't mind that. Um, But uh, go to Philippians chapter 3. I know, Romans chapter 8. While we're in Romans. Let's go to to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Look in uh, verse 29. Romans 8, 29. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he his son, in other words, might be the firstborn among many brethren. You think about that. Take it in reverse. He predestinated you and I to one day be like Jesus Christ so that it confirms the principle of the firstborn. So, In other words, God predetermined in his mind what you and I would be in eternity. It's already been determined. There's no mystery about what we're going to become in eternity. We're going to be like Jesus Christ. Right? Doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when He shall appear, we're going to see Him as He is. We're going to be like Him when we see Him. Right? Uh, Philippians chapter 3, verse 20 and 21. The Lord is going to give us, get rid of this vile body and give us a body like unto His glorious body. So that was already predetermined by God at the beginning of the world. He decided that all of those who trust His Son and are born again are one day in eternity going to be like His Son. Why did He choose to do it that way? Look at verse 29. That He might be the firstborn. In other words, there was a principle that the firstfruit or the firstborn is the promise of what's coming later. So God determined in advance that what's coming later is uh, that you and I are going to be exactly like the Lord Jesus Christ so that he could be the firstborn among many brethren. Does that make any sense? In other words, you are the blessing is that you and I are going to be like Jesus Christ. Raised, never to die again, going to be like the Lord Jesus Christ in eternity. Uh, go to Hebrews chapter 13. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 13. Now I know this is not a necessarily a letter for the Gentile church, this is for the Hebrews, and yet it's full, just full of doctrine that can be applied to you and I. So don't don't, don't just write off the book of Hebrews. I mean, you better know and love and appreciate and meditate and think on the things in the book of Hebrews. There's a lot of important doctrine in here for you and I. You just have to rightly divide it. But look in Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13. <clears throat> Remember when God first made a nation? In the wilderness, God took the children of Israel out of Egypt. He redeemed them with a stretched out arm, it says, by His mighty power and His signs. He judged the nation of Egypt. He humiliated their gods. He parted the Red Sea. The blood was applied to the doorposts of their homes. All of it is a symbol. It's symbolic of what Jesus Christ would do for you and I. Through the blood of the Lamb and through the power of God, He delivered us from the darkness of this world, and from the condemnation that we were in. He translated us 
from that darkness into the kingdom of his dear son, right? All by his power, by his grace, through his blood. Everything that happened to Israel is sort of a picture. It's a type of what would happen to you and I spiritually, right? So, so but when God made a nation in the wilderness... God redeemed them by the blood. God delivered them by His power. God brought them out of Egypt, which is what He does with you and I. He put them in a new place. God provided all of their needs. God gave them food. God gave them water. God made sure their shoes didn't wear out. In other words, they were kept by the power of God in a place where they had no power of their own to sustain themselves. That's what the Christian life is supposed to be. You're supposed to understand that your sustenance comes from God. You're not supposed to be you know, relying and leaning upon your own means. Christian life is just depending upon God every day for everything. Learning to do that. Israel is, Israel's sojourn in the wilderness, their experiences are all a picture of the Christian life. But, but then think about this. Once God got them out into the wilderness, God brought them to Himself. Right? God... At that time, there was a holy mount in the wilderness. And God dwelled, or God's presence was there on the top of that mountain. And God brought Israel to that mountain, called Moses up into that mountain, and gave him the commandments. And as the children of Israel, probably two million of them, are spread out all around that mountain, the mountain is quaking, it's on fire, there's smoke, there's the, the voice of God, which sounded like trumpets blasting. It's, it, in other words, this was a fearful sight. This was terrifying, so much so that in Hebrews chapter 13, even Moses said, I do exceedingly fear and quake. So Moses was terrified. Moses had never seen anything like this before. Children of Israel had certainly never seen anything like this before. But now... To, that, to the Jews to whom Hebrews is written, God is also calling them to Himself, as He did in the Old Testament. God called the Jewish people to Himself. But in the Old Testament, He called them to a mountain that quaked, that burned. He called them to a site that was fearful and terrible. But now, since the Gospel has come, God is once again calling another generation. In the tribulation, Jews that pick up the book of Hebrews are going to read Hebrews like you and I read the Gospel of John. This book is going to be so precious to them. This, is, this book, I mean, it's full of things that may be a little hard to be understood by a Gentile believer today, but to a Jew in the tribulation, this is going to make perfect sense. They're going to pick up this book and immediately... They're going to understand what they need to do. And in chapter 13, look at what God says. To those Jews that he's now calling at, at this time, and but particularly in the tribulation. It says, for you are not come, verse 18, for you are not come unto the mount that might be touched, that burned with fire, nor unto blackness and darkness and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, which voice they that heard entreated, that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. For they could not endure that which was commanded. And if so much as a beast touched the mountain, it should be stoned or thrust through with a dart. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. Which, by the way, he didn't say that 
It's not recorded that he said that in the Old Testament. You only know that by advanced revelation in the book of Hebrews. Because those words are never recorded anywhere in the Old Testament. The Spirit of God is telling you this. Telling it to you right now that Moses said that at the time. Alright? And it says, you are, notice, compare verse 18 and verse 22. Verse 18, for you are not come unto the mount that burned and trembled and quaked. Verse 22, but you are come. In other words, God is calling them again, but this time not to a mountain where they're going to hear the condemnation of the law. God is not calling them to Moses and the law, you know, the lawgiver. But now, these that are being called at this time are not being called to Mount Sinai. They're not being called to the law. It says they're being called to Mount Zion, under the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn. You know who the church of the firstborn are? That's us. That's us. God is saying to the nation of Israel, come on. Come on in. Come on. In other words, God in the Old Testament called them to a mountain. But in the tribulation, God is calling them to something that already exists at that time. Mount Zion, an innumerable company of angels. God is calling them to something they haven't seen or experienced or have any knowledge of at that point, God is calling them to the church of the firstborn. Not necessarily that they would become members of that. I don't know how that's going to work in eternity. But I just wanted you to see that you are mentioned in the book of Hebrews. There you are. God is calling them to the church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men, made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator, remember he was the messenger of the covenant, now he's the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. So in other words, Jesus Christ, the firstborn, the first fruits, is just a precedent and a promise, a promise of what you and I will become one day in eternity too. And God calls us the church of the firstborn. He was the firstborn among many brethren. All right, well, I had one more thing here, but I don't think we have time to look at it. Um, maybe we can just maybe we can just touch on a few of these verses real fast. The firstborn or the first fruits are also a pattern. In other words, the same way that the first Wheat comes out of the ground is how the harvest is going to come out of the ground. The, the first apples that grow on the tree are going to be the same as the apples that grow at the, in the harvest. So the first fruit is not only a precedent and a promise of a bigger harvest to come, but it's also a pattern. In other words, the first is a preview of how the rest will come to be. So in other words, how... They get saved is going to be like how they get saved. Now, they got saved, I believe, <clears throat> because of a voice from heaven, the voice of the archangel, trumpets. Trumpets in the Bible have nothing to do with the church. There's nowhere in any of Paul's letters does he tell us to blow trumpets in our worship. We don't have any feast days that involve trumpets. There's no trumpets whatsoever. In fact, On the day of Pentecost, when the 
body of Christ began, when the church began, in the Old Testament, the Feast of Pentecost was a day of blowing of trumpets. But in the book of Acts, there's no trumpets blown. It's almost as if God is trying to let you know, let you know that those trumpets in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, no, are not really for you. Do you know who, who trumpets are important to? The nation of Israel. All over the Old Testament. Numbers chapter 10, God told Moses, make two silver trumpets. The, the Jews were supposed to be assembled together with the blowing of trumpets. When it was time for them to get up and move out, they, were blow, they, they blew trumpets. When it was time for them to go to war, they blew trumpets. On their feast days, they blew trumpets. The feast of trumpets was a day unto itself just for the blowing of trumpets. Uh, on every new moon, they blew trumpets. Every time they offered burnt offerings in the Old Testament, every, and a burnt offering was offered in the morning and the evening, the beginning of the month, every time a burnt offering was offered, they were supposed to blow trumpets. Trumpets are all over the Bible in relationship to Israel. So, why are there trumpets in our rapture? It's got something to do with somebody else and not necessarily with us. Because God is getting ready to do something significant with the nation of Israel. And in the scriptures, we see trumpets at the beginning of the tribulation, and we see a great trumpet blown at the end of the tribulation. Now, here's one quick thing. Um, go to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 again, verse 8. And <clears throat> 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse number 8. Paul is talking about himself and how he got saved. Paul got saved in a very unusual way. Paul did not get saved like anybody else in the body of Christ ever got saved. If you said, well, if you need to, you know, if you want to get saved, if you and I went out and told Gentiles today, well, if you want to get saved, then you wait until you hear a voice from heaven and see a great light that outshines the sun and God will knock you down to the ground and he'll speak to you and then you'll know it's your time to be saved. Paul got saved in a way that nobody else during the church age got saved. Why did... Why did Paul have such an unusual salvation? You remember what happened to him, right? Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 22, Acts chapter 26. They all say the same thing. He's on his way to Damascus. He's going there to get Christians, bring them back to Jerusalem, throw them in prison, condemn them to death. And on the way to Jerusalem, he's not saved yet. He was a witness to the death of Stephen. And he was probably a witness to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Being a Pharisee, he would have been in the city of Jerusalem at the Passover. He would have been there. So he probably saw the crucifixion. He certainly heard the Stephen's message in uh, Acts chapter 7. He watched Stephen die. He held the coats of those that stoned him to death. And then Paul, just with a fury and a vengeance, went out to try to single-handedly see if he could stamp out Christianity. He was a one-man wrecking machine. Now, on the way to Damascus to go get more Christians and drag them back to Jerusalem, God appears to him. Saul at the time, he wasn't Paul yet, but his name was Saul. He sees a great light. Acts chapter 26, he says, it, was, it outshone the sun. So he looks up in the sky at noon, and in the sky, brighter than the noontime sun, is Jesus Christ. And then he hears a voice speaking his name. Not... Not all ye inhabitants of the earth, but this voice has got Paul's name. Calls him by name. 
Saul may have been stubborn, but he wasn't stupid. He knew, all right, time for me to stop. Time for me to... He, got, he fell on his face, and he said the smartest thing anybody could ever say. Who art thou, Lord? And Jesus answered, I'm Jesus, whom, you perse- whom thou persecutest. It's hard for you, Saul, to kick against the pricks, meaning the Spirit of God was pricking his conscience and pricking his heart. I think his heart and his conscience got pricked when he watched the crucifixion. If he was there, I think he probably was. But his conscience and his heart certainly got pricked when he heard the message of Stephen and then stood by while they persecuted that good man who didn't lash out at his killers in vengeance, but just looked up to heaven and said, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. You don't think that would stab a good man in the heart? Stabbed Paul in the heart. He was trying to himself keep a conscience void of offense toward God. He was a a good religious Jew. And he heard that voice, saw that light, was thrown on the ground and was miraculously saved. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse number 8, he says something very significant. He says, talking about all the people that got saved and the order in which they got saved, and he says, and last of all, these are the ones to whom Jesus appeared physically. He says, and last of all, he, Jesus Christ, was seen of me also. As of one born out of due time. Born before his due date. Born prematurely. Paul understood that his salvation was not like Gentiles getting saved in the church age. No other Gentiles get saved that way. Did you see a great light from heaven and hear the voice of Jesus Christ? Any of you have that experience? There's not a man in the body of Christ that ever had experience except for one guy. Why is Paul an exception? An exception in the Old Testament is always a preview of something important coming later. Enoch getting raptured in the Old Testament, the exception. Preview of a big event in the future. Jonah dying, going to hell, being down there three days and three nights, that's an exception. Nobody ever went to hell and got out again. Jonah did. But the exception always proves something important in the future. Why did Saul, the one man in the body of Christ, get saved the way he got saved? He's an exception. Because he's a picture of something important in the future. You know what he's a picture of? How a bunch of people are going to get saved as we're leaving. A light in heaven that outshines the sun and the voice of the archangel. The trump of God. Trump. That's the voice of God. The trump. John, Revelation chapter 4, John hears a voice speaking unto him like a trumpet. John hears in Revelation chapter 1, verse 10, a voice, the voice of Jesus Christ, speaking unto him like a trumpet. Those trumpets on the day of rapture are somebody's voice. You and I are on our way home. Who's God speaking to at that time? I think he's waking up. Waking up 144,000 Jews out of a 2,000-year-long sleep. And man, like the Apostle Paul, when he got saved, the Apostle Paul didn't take 10 years in Bible college and then another 10 years to figure out what the will of God is and then wait until he had, you know, wait until after my last child grows up and leaves the house, then I'm going to serve the Lord. I'm going to wait until, you know, no. He got saved. He hit the ground running. The Bible says immediately he went out and began to preach Christ in the streets of Damascus, saved for three days. What did he know? He just went out and preached what he knew immediately. 
144,000 Jews are going to do the exact same thing. See a light from heaven, hear the voice of Jesus Christ, and start preaching immediately. Isn't that a crazy thing? It's a beautiful thing. Well, I kept you too long. I'm sorry. Uh, now you're late. But um, anyway, um, we were going to look at other things that are, we're going to look at the trumpets here and the trumpets there, but maybe we'll save that for the next time.